This summer, we are reading through parables from Luke's Gospel, and if you turn with me to Luke chapter 16, uh, our scripture reading today is the parable of the shrewd manager. You can find that on page 1050 in the Pew Bibles. Luke chapter 16, on page 1050, and we'll begin at verse 1. Let's hear God's word. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. And this is God's word. Amen. Well, as we uh, anticipate gathering around the table of the Lord, um, may we turn for a few minutes to Luke chapter 16, which uh, was read to us a little earlier on. We've been reminded, haven't we, that the parables of Jesus are not just nice stories. They're designed to shock, to startle, and to make us think. 
Who in their right mind, for example, would have supposed that God would run out to welcome home a prodigal son or daughter? And who in days of deep sectarian religious and political division might imagine that my neighbor is the person not like me who nonetheless requires compassion? And so these teachings of Jesus are meant to unnerve, to unsettle the listener. And for those who submit to the authority and rule of Christ, they are designed to shake us out of our complacency. And no parable means uh, more than the one that is before us, which concludes in verse 13 with the words, "'No servant can serve two masters.'" Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then this peculiar statement, you cannot serve both God and money. So we just pray together. Gracious Lord, if truth be told, many of us want to have our cake and eat it. We want to love you but we also love every bit as much the idols of our heart. As we turn to this parable of Christ Jesus, show us what it means to confess Him as Lord and invest our resources in the things that are of eternal value. And what we ask is for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, what we have here in Luke chapter 16 is a parable about a shrewd manager. Here is this man who is managing his boss's business, having worked for him for some time. Now he's called into the boardroom, and much to his consternation, he's handed his P45. And that comes as a shock, because at his stage of life, becoming redundant, He can't think what else he could possibly do. He's not trained for anything else. He's not strong enough to take on a laboring job, and he's far too ashamed to beg. And so he works out a plan in his mind how he will ingratiate himself with some of the key individuals he has been working with in order to make his life post-redundancy a less painful and alarming experience. And so one by one, he calls in his master's customers and much to their surprise, reduces their debt, giving his master what is owed, but minus his own commission or crippling interest payments that have accrued, he hands on uh, what they give to him. And Jesus commends him, not because of his dubious ethics, but because of his ability to make friends while he has the opportunity and to take time to plan for his future. And Jesus goes on to encourage his followers to learn from that example, verse 8, not because he wants them to become rascals, but because he wishes them to act shrewdly in a spiritual sense. For the people of this world, he says in verse 8, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, says Jesus in verse 9, use worldly wealth 
to gain friends for yourselves, so that when your wealth is gone, you will be welcomed by those friends into eternal dwellings. Now, what you might ask, is that about? One of the things I hugely appreciate about being part of Bloomfield Presbyterian Church is the depth of generosity, selflessness, and kindness that is lived out and displayed in a thousand different ways week in, week out. Ken has already made comment about your unstinting commitment to the building project. But it's not just the financial investment that you have given through it uh, and also by it to our parallel project with Tear Fund in Rwanda, but I'm talking about the relational generosity which is given and received here day in and day out through countless acts of hospitality, time, talents, visiting those who are sick, feeding the poor, supporting children and young people, parents, special needs, dementia sufferers. These kindnesses poured out unconditionally, both within church and community, without any self-seeking or desire for praise is wonderful. These are things that are rarely commented about, certainly not acknowledged by secular society, which has a deeply cynical view of the church, but is deeply significant. Because where people choose to challenge their worldly gifts, energies, or possessions, says Jesus, is an indication of the Lord they honor and the master they have chosen to serve. No servant can serve two masters. Either they will hate the one and love the other, says Jesus, or they will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, the Pharisees who we read in verse 14 loved money, heard all this, and were sneering at Jesus. Isn't that a horrible word, sneering? It speaks of stuck-up contempt. Clearly, Jesus hasn't a clue what He's talking about. He is out of touch with contemporary thinking. They supposed they could have their cake and eat it. They imagined they could honor God and also worship the idols of their hearts. But, says Jesus to them in verse 15, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of other people, but God is the one who knows your heart. To follow Jesus is to confess Him as Lord over every aspect of our lives. And to do that, disciples of Jesus must invest their lives in those things that are of eternal significance. And so, it's worth uh, taking a moment, I think, for us to consider two very straightforward and clear implications from this teaching of Jesus concerning money, mammon as it is in some of our texts, since we are told God knows our hearts. And the first observation is this, that everything we have, all the things we possess, are on loan to us. This may seem a very obvious point, 
but it's one that can so easily be forgotten. Everything we have, all the things we possess, have simply been lent to us. If God is the master in Jesus' parable, we are the stewards of all that the master owns. And by definition, stewards do not own the master's money, but are simply entrusted with it. Some of you will know of the author and preacher John Ortberg, and may be familiar with the story he tells about playing the game of Monopoly with his granny. The story is called It All Goes Back in the Box, and it lasts for three minutes, and you might like just to listen to this now. Everything we have, all the things we possess are simply on loan to us. And one day, it all has to go back into the box. There's a very searching verse in First Chronicles 29 where King David, talking about the money people have given to the building of the temple, said, everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. All that we have in our wallets, everything in our bank accounts, every single thing in our share portfolios or property, it's all on loan to us. By definition, all these things will one day have to be returned to the one who entrusted it to us in the first place. That's our first observation. Everything we have, all the things we possess, are on loan to us. And then implication point two, if all that we have and all the things that we possess are on loan to us, it is imperative that we use these things astutely for the benefit of the kingdom. And that's the point that Jesus is making in this parable. The master commended the dishonest steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world, verse 8, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. And then here's the punchline in verse 9. I tell you, says Jesus, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, as it will, you will be welcomed by those friends you have made into eternal dwellings. Jesus says, since all that has been entrusted to us is only on loan to us from God, it is vital that those who seek to serve God use the money He has entrusted to us for eternal benefit. Now, this is hugely searching. And as I said earlier, one of the things I'm so thankful for here in Bloomfield is seeing how in so many ways people are investing both money and resources into countless uh, acts of hospitality and kindness and time and supportive and caring activities. This is evidence of the money that God has entrusted to us, that it's not our master but our servant. And the resources lent to us are not our Lord but the means by which it is possible to bless our Lord and help other people who have less than we do. So, let's not lose this point. 
Jesus says that how we choose to use our time and our money can actually be the means through which people can gain eternal life. And one day, those people who have come to experience salvation because of the generous way we have chosen to use our time, our talents, our holidays, our resources for investing in other people's spiritual uh, benefit. One day, those people who have come to a faith in Jesus Christ because of that will be there to welcome us into heaven. Isn't that extraordinary? I, I honestly don't think I'd ever seen this before, uh, before preparing this sermon. As we employ the resources that have been trusted to us, as we spend the money that has been lent to us to fund, to enable gospel ministry here within this community, at home, overseas, instead of hoarding it for ourselves, only for it to go back into the box, so there will be boys and girls women and men who will have cause to be thankful for their eternal joy and will welcome those who have been so employed, who have so employed their worldly riches into the presence of Lord where relationships, not things, are what matters. If all that we have and all the things that we possess are on loan to us, says Jesus, it's imperative that we use these resources astutely. Well, of course, the Lord Jesus never asks of us what He has not already done for us. And so, as we shortly move from here to gather around the Lord's table, let's remind ourselves how it is possible that those who own the name of Jesus are able to use the resources that have been loaned to us astutely. And for that, may I draw your attention to something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. Uh, it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. To be honest, the Corinthians weren't all that great at uh, generosity. Uh, the Macedonian Christians had been much more generous using their resources for helping the famine-struck believers in Jerusalem. But then the Apostle Paul writes this. He writes this to the Christians living in Corinth. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The Lord Jesus was the ultimate steward who used the riches that had been entrusted to him astutely. He is the one who had so much, and yet as the Son of God, he left the glories of heaven, and gave up the security of his life and home in Nazareth in order to become an itinerant preacher and ultimately a sacrifice upon the cross. The Lord Jesus was the one who used His resources in order to gain friends. Well, actually, more than that, Christ was the one who willingly gave up His resources in order to make His enemies into friends. 
It was sometimes said of the early Christians that they stood out as being different from the rest of secular society by being monogamous in marriage and promiscuous in generosity. That's not a bad way to be distinctive, is it? And here at the table of the Lord Jesus, we experience with our senses, we share in Christ's unstinting generosity to us, undeserved sinners. He challenges the idols of our hearts by unreservedly serving only one master, His loving Heavenly Father, so that those of us who have benefited from His astonishing, unconditional love may in response use our lives and use our resources wisely, astutely, well for the extension of Christ's kingdom and the honor of His holy name. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bring to you our hopes and dreams, our hurts and our fears, our joys and our sorrows. We bring to you our frustrations and our anxieties, our worries and dashed wishes, our honest doubts and hidden sins. Before the cross, we lay them bare, asking that before we request you to change the world, you might change us so that we might be a blessing to this world. Heavenly Father, words can be cheap. Actions can be expensive. Lead us from this place to be people encouraged, renewed, transformed and made new, filled with your love and strengthened by your Spirit. We pray for people who weigh heavily upon our hearts, members of our family, loved ones, people suffering for the name of Jesus in other parts of this world, for people in different locations who are known to us, who are spreading the gospel, who are giving their time, their talents, their resources, pouring themselves out for the love of Jesus. We pray for this world in all its brokenness and in the quietness we name different nations and different situations which are in the news and which need your touch of healing and wholeness. Heavenly Father, as we pray for these contexts and situations and people, show us, please, how we may use our lives and use those resources you have lent to us to be the means of blessing to this needy, hurting, and fragile world. And all our prayers we make in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Christ our Lord. Amen.